Well, I know that the last one just ended, but we are right about a month from the start of the 2023-2024 school year. No need to thank me for bringing that up. Lawrence and Pickens County schools both start back on August 1st. Anderson County students begin August 3rd in Greenville County on the 8th. Spartanburg follows all the way back on August 14th. So they've got almost two weeks extra. RGC families have students in a mix of public, private, online, and home schools. But our reaction to hearing those dates likely varies significantly based on what your focus is on when you hear it's almost time for back to school. Seems like we're just hitting our stride for summer vacation. Many are gone and traveling this weekend. Our oldest daughter, for instance, is is hoping to be a newly hired teacher by the time the 2024 school year begins. So she's eager to join the second grade class that she's assigned to this fall as part of her college placement so that she can learn and prepare for what her first day with her own students might be like. Our youngest daughter, who will be beginning her sophomore year of high school, is less than enthused. Some students will be eager to rejoin their friends or to begin their scholastic journey, while others dread the loss of freedom, another year's work, or the social environments they'll be exposed to. Some parents rejoice that someone else will be keeping their kids occupied for seven hours a day. (laughs) It's real. And others are wishing for more time to get their own lesson plans and schedules ready. And for those who are neither teacher nor student or have children in school, those dates likely produce little to no emotional response at all. Perhaps the greatest effect on you they have is knowing that traffic's going to be a little more congested a couple times a day. Or maybe you can score some cheap pencils with back-to-school sales. Will, you, will your focus be on the end of summer or on the start of something new? What we focus on affects how we wait with anticipation and excitement, with anxiety or dread or indifference. Whether we get busy making preparations or try to put an unwelcome reality out of our minds entirely. As back to school season approaches, what will you choose to focus on? In 2 Peter, we are reminded that the end is coming. No, not just the end of summer vacations, but the end of this physical world and all that we know in it. 
In the verses we looked at last time, we were in 2 Peter 3, a few times ago, verses 9 and 10. Peter declared that the Lord was not slow in fulfilling his promise, but he was patient towards us so that all might reach repentance, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Peter declared that the end of the earth as we know it is coming. It is a foregone conclusion, an inescapable reality. Happy Independence Day. If you're a fan of fireworks displays, this one Peter describes is going to be seriously impressive. Many of us don't like to think about that day. We kind of like to pretend it won't happen at all. Or at least it won't happen while we're around. It's a frightening picture. And honestly, I'm not really even sure which element I find scarier. This destruction of the physical world and universe or the idea that all the deeds done on it will be exposed. But Peter's goal isn't actually to provoke fear or intimidation to his hearers. Rather, he wants us to be sure that our focus is on the right thing as the promised return of the Lord draws near. Let us read together the next section in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 16. Apostle Peter writes, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He's saying, what are you to be focused on? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these Be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Let's pray. God might help us as we study his word.
Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to respond, and eyes to focus on what you direct us toward. For your glory, for our good, we pray this. Amen. The problem I run into most when I find myself growing anxious or fearful, when something is keeping me up in the middle of the night or intruding into my thoughts as I'm trying to work, whether it's related to finances or health or a relationship or something going on with one of our girls, no matter what the presenting issue is, the real problem is that I am imagining or perceiving this crisis scenario without Christ in view. I'm worrying about what is to come, yet I don't picture him as there with me, as the biggest thing about this situation. I'm not seeing him at the center of all I'll face. I'm not taking his promises into account. I'm not remembering his purpose, his presence, his protection, or his help to persevere. All I want is to avoid whatever threatens Peter points us to catastrophic events that are coming. Then he calls us to focus on the person over every problem. As you hear the word that he kept using in these verses, which is our clue to what he wants us to be doing in this passage, over and over again, he said that we were waiting said, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And again, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And again, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. I know waiting, it sounds exciting, doesn't it? A lot like we were told last week to live lives of quietness. We're really hitting it out of the park here with these topics to engage our minds and excitement. But waiting is clearly a theme that Peter wants to draw our attention to. And it's also clear that his view of waiting, his understanding of waiting, is not just killing time until something else happens. There's a purposefulness he describes. Peter's accent on waiting is both anticipatory and active. It's something we're to be doing, not just letting happen. So what are we waiting for? What motivates us? What is the thing that we are to be focused on? I'll say 
right away that when I read over this passage, my focus seems to gravitate toward the graphic descriptions of coming destruction. But this isn't what Peter wants us to focus on. When my heart is tempted to fear what is to come, whether it's the end of the month or the end of days, it's because I'm focusing on the wrong target. Peter is actually directing our gaze not to cataclysmic events, but a person. The returning Christ, the king of righteousness, we'll dwell with in the new heavens and earth. The one who makes us spotless and gives us peace. He doesn't want our focus on the destruction, but his salvation and his renewal of all things. He wants us to focus on the person of Christ over every problem that threatens. Even though he is an Olympian, Matt Emmons is not a household name. Though he's a three-time Olympic medalist, he's an American sports shooter, which is probably why most of us are unfamiliar with who he is. But he won gold, silver, and bronze over the course of three different Olympics. If you are familiar with Mr. Emmons, chances are it was for his performance at the 2004 Athens Olympics. He had already won the gold medal in the prone shooting competition and was well on his way to another gold in the 50-meter three-position rifle competition. He was so far ahead of the second-place competitor that all he had to do was hit anywhere on the target to win it all. He calmly took aim and fired and unsurprisingly hit another bullseye. But a few seconds passed without any indication of his victory. So he assumed that the scoreboard must be broken until three red-jacketed officials approached him. And they informed him that while standing in lane two, he hit the bullseye in lane three. He received a zero for his shot and dropped from first place to eighth. What we focus on matters. So let's look at Four ways Peter encourages us to focus on the person of Christ, the correct target, as we wait for his return. The first way we want to focus on the person of Christ is by focusing on the promise of Christ. Verse 13 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This world's destruction is coming. But that isn't what Peter says we are waiting for. We are waiting for a person, the person, the coming of the day of God when Christ returns and hits the reset button on all of creation. We are waiting for him to usher in a new heavens, a new earth, a place in which righteousness dwells. 
Jesus promised he was going to prepare a place for us. That he would return. He would make all things new, including us. Let's not miss the last phrase of this verse. According to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. A dwelling place is is where someone lives, where they choose to make their home. Of course, Peter is not saying that righteousness, an attribute, has chosen to live there, but that the righteous one has chosen to make it his home, where he will dwell forever. And wonder of wonders, the promise Peter highlights us waiting for is not just that the king of righteousness will have a new palace, but that he has prepared it for us to dwell with him in his righteousness. When that day comes and we are joined to him, we won't just be declared righteous as we are now. We will actually be righteous. We will no longer sin or disobey. We will live experientially the reality which we're already declared to be by heaven's judge. When we see him face to face, we will be made like him. We will be entirely sanctified. There will be no traces of sin left within us, cleansed from even the desire to sin. We will live and act righteously in thought, word, and deed. Though we have not attained this perfection on our own, it will be our eternal, redeemed reality. That's something to look forward to, to anticipate, to be excited about, to wait for this promise of Christ, the righteous one, to dwell with him forever in his righteousness. The second thing Peter wants us to focus on is the peace of Christ. Because the thing is, as we consider that reality that we will be with him forever, as righteous as that we know we don't deserve to be there. Because of our sin, we were driven from the first perfect home he created for us. But Peter calls us, he says, Beloved, since you are waiting for these, this new heaven, this new earth, where you'll dwell with him in righteousness, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. Well, I know I'm not without spot or blemish, so it seems like peace isn't going to happen either. Right? Yeah, you are right. If we're trying to get there, if we're trying to get that righteousness, if we're trying to get that peace, apart from him. Our 
cleansing only comes by him, from him. Just like the parable of the king who sent his servants to fill his son's wedding feast with everyone that would come. And then noticed there was someone there not wearing the wedding garments. And he had him thrown out to where there was torment and gnashing of teeth. Because the point of the parable was that the only way to enjoy the banquet is by wearing the clothes that the king provides. We are declared righteous Not because we are spotless, but because he was. We receive the credit of his perfect obedience, even though we are not yet perfect in our own obedience. So, we need to look to and even remind our own guilty consciences what his actions were on our behalf not just to focus on our own inadequacies, shortcomings, and sins, but to see that he came to cleanse us, that he declared the work was finished when he hung upon that cross, that he had victory that he brought us up into. Be diligent to make sure you are putting on his robes of righteousness, not trying to manufacture your own. He isn't calling us to work harder until we get there. He's calling us to recognize what he has done and recognize we only come by him, by his righteousness, by what he has accomplished. The penalty of sin was paid by Christ at Calvary and it's power utterly broken when the stone sealing his tomb was rolled away. Every trace of sin did not evaporate in that moment, but it will when he returns. He will completely eradicate every sin and every effect of its curse upon us and this world. The end is not in question, but it can be hard to see here and now. And since we celebrate Independence Day this weekend, the Revolutionary War illustration seems fitting. After six years of war, both the British and Continental armies were exhausted. The British in hostile territory held only a few coastal areas in America. On the other side of the Atlantic, Britain was was involved in a global war with France and Spain. The American conflict was also unpopular and divisive, and there was no end in sight. For the colonies, the long struggle for independence was leading to enormous debt, food shortages, and a lack of morale among the soldiers. Both sides were desperately seeking a definitive victory. General George Washington and his Continental Army had a decision to make in the spring of 1781. They could seek a decisive blow to the British in New York City or aim for the South in Yorktown, Virginia, where General Cornwallis's troops were garrisoned. Washington and his French ally, 
Lieutenant General Comte de Rochambeau, bet on the south, where they were assured critical naval support from French fleet commanded by Admiral Comte de Grasse. The Allied armies marched hundreds of miles from their headquarters north of New York City all the way down to Yorktown, making theirs the largest troop movement of the American Revolution. They surprised the British in a siege that turned the tide toward an American victory in the war for independence. When news of Cornwallis's surrender reached London on November 25th, the Prime Minister, Lord North, declares, Oh God, it's all over. It's all over. On March 5th, 1782, Parliament passed a bill authorizing the government to make peace with America. Lord North resigned 15 days later, but it took the colonists two more years of skillful diplomacy to formally secure their independence, though the treaty, through the Treaty of Paris, the war was won two years previously with the British defeat at Yorktown, but it took time for the realization and everything to be formally recognized. We need to hear the reality that peace with God was won for us by God 2,000 years ago. It is not in question. We can enjoy its benefits now. Even though there are struggles and temptations and we don't see the fullness of its effect yet. Though we wrestle with its effects in our daily lives and they cause us pain and heartache, the war against sin and its curse has been won. Christ will return to formally and fully secure his victory, but the outcome is already assured. Peace with God was paid in full at Calvary and affirmed by his resurrection. And no troubles and temptations will persist until he returns. Our greatest problem, peace with God, has been secured by God for us. So we can be people at peace, even in the midst of turmoil. Third thing Peter urges us to focus on is the patience of Christ. Peter points out that God's patience is purposeful. Verse 15 says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him. And this is really similar to what we looked at last time in verse 9. Just a couple verses before where Peter said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is displaying purposeful patience right now. 
this present time between his ascension and the coming final trumpet isn't because he needed a break. It isn't, I think I'll sit this one out, take a rest for a few innings, somebody else do the job. It's not him just waiting to see what advancements we'll come up with. Will they finally put the, the goods together for a legit flying car? Will they make an AI powerful enough to enslave them all? God's not just waiting for something else to happen. He's purposeful in giving time. He is patient that more might be saved. We have been the recipients of his patience. If we know him, we enjoy his patience. Should be grateful for it. And as long as his patience persists, it means that there are more he intends to save. And that we can be part of his rescue mission. This world is going to burn. And those who remain unrepentant will experience torment forever. Do we let those around us know that this waiting period is his patience in action? that all might come to repentance? Do we pray and work and give that his good news might reach the ends of the earth so that his promise might be enjoyed by those in every nation and tribe and tongue? These things will happen. Will we play a part? In verse 12, Peter tells us we are not only to be waiting for, but hastening the coming of the day of God. We have a role to play. We are called to be involved in his promise being fulfilled to the ends of the earth, to those in our own families, in our neighborhoods. Let us cherish the patience of the Savior and declare to all those around us his generous purpose for it. Finally, Peter exhorts us to focus on the person of Christ by focusing on the apostles of Christ. Which as far as P words go, that's a little bit of a stretch. Peter points us, his readers, to Paul's writings and the rest of Scripture. Years earlier, Peter needed to be rebuked openly by Paul for his treatment of the Gentile believers. 
but Peter was humble enough to not only recognize God's given apostolic authority that Paul had, but also to identify him here as a dear brother. Peter and Paul were both near the end of their lives and ministries by the time this letter was written. Both are believed to have been martyred in Rome around AD 66. And as we have mentioned before in this letter, this was his last known correspondence as he was waiting for his sentence to be fulfilled. And Paul would have been, even by this time, the most widely read Christian writer in the world. And Peter wants his readers to know that they share the same Lord, that there is no division between them. They share the same message. But he's saying much more than that he and Paul agree. He highlights that Paul's letters were already understood to have the same authority an origin as the other scriptures, which would be referring to the Old Testament. This is not a throwaway statement that Peter just makes in passing. He took great pains at the start of his letter to defend his own apostleship, But he also said in chapter 1 that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We we don't just decide, hey, this is Scripture, that's Scripture, whatever I say is Scripture. He's saying, no, it has to come from God himself. And yet, he is acknowledging that's what we have in Paul's writings, these letters that have been distributed and, and share this same message How amazing to recognize in your own time that what is going on is this authoritative activity of God by his spirit. Peter assures his readers that Paul's letters carry the same authority as Moses and the prophets. And they share the same glorious gospel and blessed hope. Peter wants us to take to heart not only his own testimony, but Paul's and all of Scripture. Because they all point to Christ. Paul, who reported in 2 Corinthians that he was once taken up into the third heaven and experienced so wondrous and life-transforming, he said, so to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. In other words, this was so marvelous to keep me from just being full of what I have experienced and just focusing on that This has been sent to harass me because there are other things I need to be focused on as well. He had glimpsed the prize and counted his life as loss. And everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing and being with the Lord. He longed to be with Christ, knowing from experience how much greater that was for him yet also knowing he would remain 
in this life a little while longer for the sake of others. Knowing who he was waiting for gave Paul strength to endure hardships, persecutions, thorns, and attacks from Satan, imprisonment, abandonment, shipwreck, hunger. Knowing what awaited Paul when he would be with his Lord made all the difference in how he lived while he waited. Peter lets his readers know we're talking about the same Lord, same hope. We look forward to his return. It's wondrous beyond our imaginations. It's worth everything else. It's the pearl of great price to be with him. It's worth selling all else for. Peter acknowledges that a lot of this, including Paul's letters, can be hard to understand, which should be some comfort for all of us. This reality that Bible study takes work and is dependent upon God's Spirit to illumine us, to help us to understand, even for apostles who walked with and learned from Jesus, who saw his miracles and healings, witnessed his resurrection. Decades after sitting at Jesus' feet, Peter still said, this is hard. But, He still points us to the scriptures because they reveal Christ. Because they reveal his good news. God's spirit gives insight and revelation as we focus on his inspired word. And he warns us that there is a difference. Yes, it's hard. There's a difference before between finding Scripture difficult and willfully twisting it to say what we find helpful, or relevant, or reasonable to believe. He warns that those who twist the Scriptures for their own purposes, they'll suffer an awful fate. Difficult doesn't mean we get to decide whatever it is that it says. Peter knows from painful personal experience that if it's only saying what we want it to say, then that might not actually be the voice of God. He himself was told, get behind me, Satan, when he tried to change what Jesus' words were saying. To focus on the person of Christ, we must focus on and submit to the apostles' teaching and prophetic scriptures, for they point us and help us to focus on his promise, his peace, and his patience. As we look to the future, what are we waiting for? What will you focus on? Let us ask for his help to correct our aim and to focus on the person of Christ over every problem, over everything else that threatens to take our view. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have given such wonderful promises. That you have not just 
left us alone. But that you have purposely given this time that we might come to know you. That you might seek and save the lost. That by your spirit through your people more and more might come to know you and to love you and to be joined to you forevermore. Lord, we thank you for your patience and purpose to bring us near to yourself. We thank you that the peace with God has already been provided by you. It is not up to our extra effort but you give it freely as a gift to all who would come, to all who would bow our knee and say, your way is best. We give our lives freely to you. Lord, would you help us to see you more clearly, to love you more fully. In your name we pray, amen.